to the Faithless Brewing Podcast. I am David Robertson, and I am joined by the CEO of the Faithless Brewing Podcast. Back from his many travels, he is Caved In Online, and he is Dr. Daniel Schriever. What's going on, man? Hello, David. Good to see you. Happy Leap Day. Yes, happy Leap Day to you as well. (laughs) Yeah, we're sneaking in right at the end of February, which means it is 80 degrees and scorching down here in Texas. I'm heading out to Big Bend National Park uh, next week, actually. So excited about that. Yeah, my younger sister loves that park. She uh, made it a mission when she lived in San Antonio to see a bunch of the uh, parks in Texas and spent a whole day driving out there. She said it's very surreal because, you know, it's flat all the way there. And then all of a sudden you're like in a different ecosystem uh, once you get up the elevation change. It actually is officially a different ecosystem. Right, and you kind of slid in quietly, spent a whole day driving down there. So I'm like, yeah, I'm also, I'm in Texas. I should see the sites of Texas. I should go explore. Um, it's like eight hours, eight and a half hours for me. So <laughs> it's going to be a whole day yeah. driving there, a whole day driving back. And I think we'll be there for like three days in the park. Yeah, that sounds right. It's sort of like the Savage Lands of the X-Men, right? You just like go there, you lose all your powers, and then you uh, start a whole new life. And then eventually you make it back to civilization. Exactly. What's new with you? Well, Minnesota weather-wise is absolutely insane. So this past weekend, it was like 60 degrees. Yesterday, it was 20 degrees or 15 degrees for a high. And then this Sunday, again, I believe it will be 69, in parentheses, nice, Mm -hmm. uh, degrees. So um, for people who aren't from Minnesota, 60 degrees in February is just absolutely insane. We've we've had two days of snow the entire year. Um, Yeah, I just... You should probably tell your loved ones that you like care about them just frequently. It's just my recommendation to everybody. It's, just, it's not going to hurt anything. It's not going to hurt anything. <sighs> yeah. Um, well, uh, it's nice to be back here on the actual timeline. So we are going to be covering a wide range of topics today since we have not recorded in a little while. We have magic news. We got a pro tour results in the bag. We got some brews. David, you've been playing some spicy stuff. Um, and we're going to check in on some of our predictions to see if they've played out. Cause I think, you know, we were both in agreement that the, the blue counterspell, the blue white counterspell was going to be the most impactful card. Has that turned out to be the case? Um, sort of, uh, we were also thinking arch druid's charm was going to be a multi-format star and quite a lot of evidence, a lot of interesting decks coming out of modern on arch druid's charm. And David, you have some very promising results as well. Yeah. And before we get to all that, we need to give a shout out to our newest patrons. So we want to give a big Faithless Brewing welcome to Bradley C, Thomas A, Jeremy H, and Jack H. Are those brothers, Jeremy and Jack? I don't don't know what their last names are. I won't. uh... (laughs) Uh, Jack is one of our oldest patrons. He's been with us since nearly the beginning. So it's good to see returning faces. Um, And yeah, welcome to new faces and old thank you thank you very much for your support and just a reminder that if you appreciate the mission of brewing and you want to throw us some support you can head over to patreon.com slash faithless brewing uh, that's where you can sign up make a pledge at any tier you like you can come hang out in our wonderful discord community where new ideas are being thrown around all the time and sometimes producing some really cool collaborations and results and we're gonna we're gonna talk about one of those decks when we get to our picks of the week uh, later on at the cast. 
But sticking with the main timeline, so we're just coming out of Pro Tour Murders at Karlov Manor. A pioneer Pro Tour. All the greats put their heads together to break the format, and, you know, somewhat surprisingly, they kind of did. The winning deck was a, a new deck, right? So there's Rakdos Vampires. New in the sense that it's good for the first time. I, I don't know. But how did that happen, David? Like, why is Vampires suddenly winning a Pro Tour? Well, I think what you had was that Blue White and Phoenix were actually the best decks. Um, even the results of this Pro Tour don't actually tell me that they aren't. But once you start trying to play cards like Cavern of Souls to fight Blue White, because I think that we all understood that Blue White had a huge target on its back, that forces you to play a certain type of creature type, right? You can't play Cavern of Souls easily in Red Black. Does not cast Bone Crusher on turn two or a Stomp on turn two. Does not cast Graveyard Trespasser if you wanted to cast Shieldred, etc., etc. So I think if you want to play Cavern of Souls plus Black Interaction, which continues to be the actual defining cards of the format, Thoughtseize Fatal Push, you had to get a little creative. We have talked for a long, long time. I, I literally, I don't even mention it almost anymore. I, I guess I mentioned every spoiler season. We always do the Soren check. Is there an expensive vampire in this set? Mm-hmm. And if there is, you should consider playing with it because Soren, in my, I've said it over and over again, is the best three mana planeswalker in raw power. Um, it can, in theory, make unlimited mana, right? If you had a 50 <laughs> mana vampire, it could put it in play on turn three. Um, and they, you know, I think we have seen technology in the last Pioneer Pro Tour, forgetting the Japanese pro that lost to Reed in the finals, but he played a bunch of Mutavolts and he played extra dresses. And the Channel Fireball list includes four Mutavolts, which are even more natural with Sorin, and two Duresses. And then they found that Blood Ripper, the, the newest six-mana vampire, is, uh, was just the card that they needed to find. Smuggler's Copter is unbanned, so that gives you another discard outlet with your Blood Tithe Harvester and Fable, so you can assemble your combo easier or discard your six-mana card if you can't cast it. And then Preacher of the Schism is just the best three-mana vampire ever printed recently, as I said when it was printed at the time. And then they just cut back on removal because they are expecting to play Lotus Field and Blue White. They only have five pieces of removal with no uh, stomps, so that they're really like way down on removal. Uh, so just a really, really good job deciding what they wanted to target. Uh, and then because Phoenix is the best deck in the format, other than Blue White, they have four Leyline of the Voids in the sideboard. Um, so they just like no messing around. Like it's just, it's just go time. So I think they just did an excellent job building a deck that has a powerful proactive plan. So they're not just a, a reactive deck. And then they have a very uh, good sort of anti-plan against the other powerful decks in the format. Just to put some numbers on what you're saying, Phoenix was by far the most popular deck at the Pro Tour, and Blue-White was the second most popular. Now, Phoenix performed very, very well. Um, to be the most popular deck and to still win at 57.5% is insane. Like, that's a sign that it's like, maybe op technically erectos vampires outperformed it um i called it a new deck but this was one of the pro teams i forget what they're calling themselves now ultimate guard or something like that so a lot of people brought this deck but it was a deck that basically no one else beside their team was playing this configuration that david just described combined they won at 60 percent, 60.2 percent actually so it is fair to say that it was the best performing deck at well (laughs) 
unless you count Nassif's blue-black control, which was 80%. I do want to point that out. I I think that that, uh, Wizards of the Coast does a huge disservice. It's very important to me that Frank Carson makes the qualification, which is very accurate. It's the best-performing deck played by a lot of people. Yeah. But on coverage, multiple times, Marshall said, this is the best deck in the tournament. This is the best performing deck. He never qualified it. And of course, he's friends with people on that team. So I don't think this kind of thing is an accident. So I do want to point that out. I think it's very, very relevant. Oh, you mean calling vampires the best deck was premature when he, when he was saying it without qualifications? Without saying it's the best deck perform- played by a bunch of people, which Frank Carson has always said when yeah, he's yeah. mentioned it. But when you're friends with people on a team, I do think that a narrative is being formed all the time. And I think Marshall is very guilty of that. I mean, it helps that they won the event. But, but again, that's, that's, you don't, then you don't have to say anything inaccurate. You can just accurately describe everything they did. They built a great deck for the tournament. It attacked the tournament very well. They collectively had the best winning record of a deck that was played by multiple people. And mm-hmm. the Seth Manfield played excellently to win the tournament. We don't have to lie. We don't have to say things that are actually false. To, to talk about what a great tournament they had. Yeah, no more lies, right? Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of the that... The spin zone, baby. In, in the age of Trump, let's all just be better. Let's just be <laughs> more accurate about what's happening. We don't need to drop to anyone else's level. Given that blue-white control was, uh, I guess, the, thir- the third most played deck behind... Or basically, it's tied with Rakdos for second or third most played. Given that it only performed at 47.2%, do you still feel comfortable calling blue-white a top deck in the format in Pioneer? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think there's two factors. One, as Frank Carson often points out, he hates playing control against pros. They're so good, right? Like, mm-hmm. so I think you, if you're building a deck and you're going to play a league, which is what we do, right? I don't get to play against a pro tour. <laughs> Thank God, because my record would be, regardless of how good the deck I built would be, uh, have a poor win percentage. You need to be able to beat blue white control. You're going to play it. Um, once or twice a league because it is so powerful. All these decks were altered in multiple ways to be able to beat blue white control. There's like 10 different card choices in the red, black vampires list that give a game against blue white control. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's definitely a tier one deck. It's, it's a gatekeeper of the format. If you want to think of it that way, uh, mono green, which had a losing record, uh, you know, allegedly was pushing out all these decks. That's why we had to ban a card from, from, uh, you know, we had to ban Karn so that Mono Green wasn't holding decks down. Blue Blue White is suppressing other decks, um, and, and it's it's it has an effect on this format, even if it doesn't do that well. The other thing is the level of player that played Rakdos Vampires is very high, right? If you just told me, all right, Paul Rietzel mm-hmm. and Luis Scott Vargas and Seth Manfield, um, I, don't, I don't know everyone else on the team, but sure, people of that quality are all playing all list, and then let's say I'm playing a better deck they would probably have a winning record against me. That that doesn't mean my deck is worse. If if we switch places, they might win with an even higher percentage, right? So, <laughs> Fair points. Um, okay, so blue-white at 47.2 doesn't bother you too much. What about Rakdos at 41.7% against the field? What happened? I basically think that Rakdos and blue-white were the, the fallback plans for people who didn't work in the format at all. There wasn't mm-hmm. any tech you could really do because blue-white... It's just answers. You don't really know what the threats are going to be. And red-black is just a stock list. No one's making any changes. Even at the last Pro Tour, you'll remember, red-black didn't actually do that well. Mm-hmm. The weird build from, uh, again, I'm forgetting the Japanese pro, uh, who was playing multiple Mutavolts, which we thought was odd. He's the only one who actually did really well with it. I think he's the only red-black mid-range person to top eight, uh, ultimately losing to Reed in the finals. 
Hmm. So I don't think red black is that good. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, the numbers seem to support your assessment there. So going back then to the, the good red black deck, <laughs> the professional quality red black deck, Rakdos vampires. So you, you were uh, putting me on blast a little bit because the, apparently the new cards that are making this work apart from metagame shifts is these two sweet new vampires, both of which I declared unplayable or uninteresting when they were previewed <laughs> and you were valiantly patiently trying to explain to me why these are actually the best vampires at their slots i still don't quite understand why like what's the deal with preacher and what's the deal with vein ripper like wh- why are these cards the cards that put the deck over the f- over the top first of all i just looked it up shota yasuoka lost in the finals to read duke so my apologies to shota my favorite pro ever um <laughs> For not remembering, I couldn't remember. He, well, you know, he doesn't even think of him playing red black, so maybe that's why I had a block. But mm-hmm. um, I think first of all, the the two four is really good against blue red because they own uh, Phoenix. They only have four cards that kill it, so you have a card that naturally survives the commonly played red removal against red black. It also survives stomp. Um. And then it's a, it's a very hard card to race. It's it's one of those cards you almost have to play against. They play a 2-4, you've got a threat and play. If your threat doesn't have 4 power, it can't attack. If you aren't playing the right removal, you can't kill their creature. And then if you're trying to race, even if they're behind in life, they just keep pooping out 1-1 one, one lifelinkers that, you know, block your Bone Crusher Giant, that block your hmm. Shieldred or whatever. Um so it's a card that kind of looks innocuous until you actually look at like the commonly played cards in the format. And then you realize like, it's not easy to like cleanly take care of this card. It it has a four toughness where most cards are, you know, like more bone crusher style. Mm-hmm. It provides card advantage. If they're ahead, it, it, it um, provides a body to, to prevent racing or to help stabilize. Um, and then as you point out, okay, they'll just take the two damage. It's not that big of a deal. With Sorn in play, it becomes a 3-5 lifelink. It becomes a 4-6 lifelink. It's a card you have to block and, and trade with, even if you have a shield in play, let's say. You you, you actually can't race it. Hmm. Okay. So, I mean, I guess we have enough evidence now since this card has been performing for a few months. But what about Vein Ripper? There are plenty of top-end vampires you could consider. Um, it used to be Champion of Dusk. People were trying Olivia for a while. People were trying Galta and Maverin. I thought maybe the um, Queen's Agent something that reanimates a vampire would be interesting, but Vein Ripper is apparently just better than all these. It's better than Evelyn. It's better than the one that makes them sack half their stuff. Yeah, I mean, the, the main thing with Vein Ripper is, is like we talked about in the um, spoiler episode, the the ward of sack a creature. Mm-hmm. Again, you have to play against it to really understand. If you're blue-white and you don't have a creature in play, your spot removal doesn't do anything. Mm-hmm. If you're Phoenix and you're going to cast two spells to kill it, you don't have two creatures to sacrifice. If you want to do five damage to with Lava Axe, you already have to have a creature in play just to kill it. And then the racing the racing component becomes interesting. Fable copying it. Okay, you get to attack with two six-power flyers, even if somehow you can chump that. Chumping does two damage to your opponent. Sacking the 6-5 at the end of your turn because it's copied does four damage to your opponent. Um, when they start casting Fatal Push, that's doing two damage to your opponent each time. So it, it also makes it very hard to race. 
So it's a very fast clock, faster than the four power that draws a, a card or two. Um, so they, I think the Channel Fireball people were saying they liked it more against like Lotus because it's just a faster clock. Mm. And then like even if you just put it in play with Soren, the commonly played removal, Fatal Push is the best removal spell in the format, does not kill it. Torch the Tower. You need two of them plus two permanents in play to sack, plus two creatures to sack to kill it with Torch the Tower, right? I mean, it's just impossible. So it's basically just Lava Axe or the two mana black removal. Plus a creature, plus it's still a four life swing. If the sack a creature, that's the two life drain, plus kill the vampire, and you still have sword in play. So, it, like I said, just it dominates mid-range matchups. So if you do have what they call Splinter Twin, right? Soaring on turn three into Vein Ripper. Two attacks with a Vein Ripper. Uh, one of them, let's say it's buffed with a Soren, right? So that's seven and seven. Then after that, you can fling the Vein Ripper for another five. Is that right? So you're almost yep. there just from two attacks. That's pretty quick clock. <laughs> if anything else died, uh, that's lethal. Yeah, I guess the other thing that people are saying is if you do try to kill the Vein Ripper, if you have a creature sacrifice, which is very, very difficult, like David was saying, if they can respond by killing your creature, then you, you're just left with nothing. You just got to pack up your cards. So, all right, more than meets the eye to this. Um, I respect the Vein Ripper. I apologize. I will say, if you want to play against this, it's just everywhere. If you play a league right now, everyone's just playing the same deck over and over again. If you want to play on the ladder, uh, you can play against this probably five or six times in a row. You can really hone uh, your deck if you've got a sideboard player or something. <laughs> the uh, the sheep uh, that love to play the same deck, that uh, just the hot new deck, they're, they're, they will make it very available to you. You can get, collect a lot of data quickly, we'll say. And if you want to master the deck, the team that played this deck most of them are affiliated with Channel Fireball, and Channel Fireball has apparently made all of their articles free now. They've taken down the paywall, and that goes back years, actually. So a lot of articles from the past three or four years from uh, <laughs> well-known pros. Is there such a thing as a well-known pro anymore? People that you there used to There are no us. Yeah. <laughs> right. So like Seth Manfield, I uh, wrote a tournament report to put it up there, and he talks about some of their decision-making process, trying out the different creature types to go with cavern and then at what point they decided to splash into red i guess paul retail decided to stick with mono black to be more aggressive but yeah the rest of them just couldn't couldn't give up the power of fable and the tithe harvester and i think that was the right call yeah it's interesting because retail brought the deck to the team and i think he didn't do that well with his mono black <laughs> shell so somehow he uh he got hosed it's so sad i mean Knight of the Evan legion like that was the card that he was really pinning his hopes on and that they're not playing that in this red black version they're only playing two dusk legion zealots so interesting it's like a heavier slower deck yeah i mean obviously the 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 data set is very small and of course there's six rounds of draft so pro tours actually don't tell you a lot about the the standard set mm. specifically the top eight or whatever right like um jean de Prav who lost to um seth in the in the i think the semifinals and just had some tough luck and, and Seth also played very well, but you know, he, he, his limited record was terrible. So his, his constructed record was incredible. So if you really want to look at like the best deck, I would maybe look at his Phoenix list. <laughs> <laughs> um, another cool new feature out there is MTG goldfish, which among other things is a great aggregator of tournament results has added a new feature now where if you click on a tournament and scroll down past all the deck lists at the bottom of the page, it will show you, 
all the decks in that tournament, they were using cards from the most recent expansion that's called New Cards Being Played. So if you just want to quickly see, like at this Pro Tour, which cards from Karlov Manor actually made it into decks, you can quickly see that uh, No More Lies had the most copies out there, followed by the Blue-White Surveil Land and uh, the Blue-Green Surveil Land. Those are also in the top five. What would you guess is the third most played card from the new set? Deduce? That's in the top five. 20 decks brought Deduce, mostly blue-white control, but also some creativity and uh, Nassif's Demure control. I do not know. So it's actually Krenko's Buzz Crusher, the 4-4 that uh, can pick off a Lotus Field. What's, what's wild about it is that the decks that were playing this was mostly Lotus Field decks. They're like, yeah, we can cast this. This is fine. <laughs> we'll just put this on our sideboards. So, yeah, almost 30 decks were playing the Buzz Crusher, although I don't think many of them were playing at main deck except for the enigmatic lists. Yeah, I mean, super cool card. I haven't really gotten to tool around with it much, but I think, I think the card is, is very good. And then Archdura's Charm rounds out uh, the top four, which is a card we'll be spending a little bit more time on later on in the show. Let's talk about Nassif's list for just a second here. So he was playing Demir Control. What do you make of his build? So the main technology he adopted is for Deduce. You know, I, I said this card was going to just be insane in Strike Control, especially when you're not um, playing the one white-white enchantment that exiles all the cheap permanents, right? You get to keep your mm. clue around. And he recognized immediately, if you if you watch him stream, that the new sweeper was a huge upgrade. So instead of playing Extinction Event, right, which is powerful against Phoenix, but sometimes not that great against aggro, right, it maybe only kills half their creatures, he can play the new sweeper. Um, I don't even know what it's called. It's five mana, and if you um, exile six mana worth of cards from your graveyard as it resolves, uh, you can basically remove a specific creature that was destroyed from the game and you can search their library uh, to get rid of it. So if you sweep Phoenixes, you just pick the Phoenix, you know, you exile a, mm -hmm. a Cycle Shark Typhoon, which is a card that just effortlessly does it for you. Gives you all six uh, mana costs that it requires. So it still does the, the thing you want. Gets rid of Amalia if you want. But it's a clean sweeper against aggro. It doesn't just get the twos or just the ones, right? It takes care of everything. Yeah, that card is called Deadly Cover-Up, and I don't even think we talked about this. It just didn't register for me that that was going to be a useful line of text. Me either. Like, I, I really don't like five-mana sweepers. It just seems, like, really slow against the, like, Convoke list, right? You you need to sweep on three sometimes before five. But um, he kind of took care of all that stuff in his sideboard and maybe recognized that um, the Convoke list doesn't line up well against some of the other shells, so... Specifically, it's bad against vampires because Vein Ripper just, you just can't race it in that way. Hmm. So how big of an upgrade do you think is Deduce and the Blue-Black Surveil Land for this deck? Um, Deduce is a huge upgrade. I mean, the card's incredible. The Surveil Land, I, I, I don't know. I, I, you'd have to ask Nassif. I, I did not watch a single game that he played, and I, I haven't actually watched him stream very much. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, he's definitely like moved more towards dig through time, which is a card some people aren't even playing. So he's playing two digs, but he's not having to play consider at all to support them because he has the um, surveil lands and he has sensor to help fill his graveyard. Oh, I didn't notice there was no consider here. That's interesting. 
One of confounding riddle helps fuel dig through time as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Three main deck to gates. Again, ready, very teched out. Also, the edict, I think, going forward is actually incredible against vampires. It kills Soren. If they don't put the 6-5 in play, it can edict away the 6-5 without having to need a, a creature. Um, so just a very clean answer, right? You, you push their Blood Tithe Harvester, and then you you edict their 6-5 after it resolves. Then their Soren actually doesn't generate any value at all. Yeah, I guess it's worth pointing out that if you're concerned about Vein Ripper, there are plenty of cards that cleanly pick off a flyer. Um, pick Your Poison is from the new set, right? And it's one of its modes is just like, yep, they sack a flyer. So I've been playing it a lot. It's it's great to ring in because they're also playing Fable and uh, Copter. So it's just never a dead card and it's always trading up. Obviously, Fable, they get value. They get the 2-2, but I mean, you're always getting something. Uh, and they're only really playing Copter and they're only really playing Fable. There aren't other things that can interfere. They don't have any other flyers. Uh, if you're playing a graveyard-based deck, they're going to bring in, they're playing the the four ley lines. So it's it's just a very powerful card uh, right now pick your poison like always good in that you you can main deck it or always good to bring in it's it's a card if i'm playing green i'm i'm looking to play two or three in my sideboard no matter what i'm finding a way to play two or three in my sideboard main decking it is really interesting if you have a discard outlet then it's a, that might actually be the move hmm. like if you're playing red green control for some reason but you had like fable to discard it when it's not good that that actually sounds really good to me i don't know what red green deck wants to play fable but hmm. okay all right so anything else from the pro tour decks you found interesting or cards that you want to give a shout out to um not really i didn't watch much of the pro tour i think it's really a shame what they did to the pro tour you know, there's a huge standard tournament the same weekend. The The viewership is way down. You know, all these awesome pros, you know, who should be talking about their Hall of Fame case and stuff. I mean, what Wizards has done to the Pro Tour is, is a real disservice to all these excellent players and, and all that effort that they put in. So mm. it was more just like, this is what they took from us. That was kind of my sense. <laughs> Seth Manfield, like bringing a, a new deck and just playing so well. And, you know, yes, he, he had to get lucky, of course, but he, they brought an awesome deck. He played incredibly well, like. This should just be like wins all around. It's just like kind of nobody gives a shit. Like they've fractured the player base so much. And hmm. we should be like toasting Seth Manfield as like one of the best players of all time. And uh, it's just like there's not even a place to have the conversation, really. <laughs> Unless you want to get on like the godforsaken world of Twitter slash X. <laughs> yeah, talking about the pro tour and the pros themselves just makes me a little sad. But let's focus on the cards themselves. The cards are positive, the cards are feel good. Um, a few that I'll just like mention cards that made it into lists. And now these lists did not do that well, but they were registered at least. So novice inspector, the Thraben inspector um, found a nice little home in Boros convoke. No surprise there. Fugitive Codebreaker, right? The two, one prowess haste that if you, if you morph it, you can get like a little bedlam reveler seems to have cracked the starting lineup in the Boros heroic builds. So uh, a number of, Boros Heroic players did pretty well. I think one made top eight even. Yeah, Simon Nielsen lost in the finals. Oh, yeah. There you go. So that seems to be, I don't know, call it a staple. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that a bit later in the cast because uh, our friend Law Levin has been doing a lot of great work on Fugitive Codebreaker. A few cases showed up, and this kind of surprised me. So case of the Gateway Express. I don't think we talked about this one. It's one in a white when it enters. 
And we can say that now because that's apparently an official change. Enters the battlefield is, is out. It's now just when this enters. Choose target creature you don't control. Each creature you control deals one damage to that creature. So it's kind of a removal spell. Um, to solve the case, three or more creatures attack this turn. And then when it's solved, creatures you control get plus one plus O. Oh. So Boros Convoke is apparently picking up this card. Um, what do you make of this? Yeah, it's really good. It's basically like a two mana sorcery speed terminate that turns into a um you know a crusade effect uh surprisingly powerful i think this is technology the classic as you described and like the convoke deck is very good in standard and because people don't have as many good cards they try this card and then they just immediately see that it's incredible so much better than the three mana enchantment that pumps all your creatures and then they do a damage when they come into play that card is is turned out to be the trap, and this card turns out to be uh, the enchantment that you want. Hmm. Yeah, but we we can't call it a crusade effect, David. We gotta call it what it really is: orcish oraflame. So orcish oraflame. Oh yeah, true. <laughs> it it doesn't pump the toughness. Um. Yeah, so that's one that like just slipped by. I don't even think I noticed that card during the previews. I mean, I looked at all the cases just because I love like the idea of like completing these little quests. I love these things, but they all just seems like so wonky. But I, as as not a Boros uh, Convoke player, I didn't realize like how useful this card is. It kills Shieldred often. It can kill Vein Ripper even at the cost of a creature. Um, and then after that, you know, just the plus one plus oh just really matters. Although if you try that line with the Vein Ripper, I, I think you need an extra creature because you're going to sack a creature before it checks. Yes. Yep. <laughs> so. Yep, you need six. Um, geez. I, I noticed that four different Is It a Soul players decided that they should run Case of the Filched Falcon. So I'm not totally crazy. You know, it, it is good. It's it's an artifact that becomes a, a bonus and soul later in the game. As predicted, um, I see that one of them went three and seven. One of them went one <laughs> <Yeah>. and three. <laughs> they collectively have the record of the San Antonio Spurs right now. So... Uh, but they tested it. They reached conclusions in testing. Right. Um, <laughs> Absolutely did. And uh, yeah, five Boros Rogue players registered Case of the Crimson Pulse to reload their hands. Um, new tech. Yeah, interesting stuff. Now, here's a question for you. The, this is not listing Lightning Helix, maybe because it's not considered to be a new card, but it was a new card for Pioneer, and Ben Stark mm. Played four of them in his list, so I think maybe this is just a miss on the database here. But that must be uh, just an error. So this is basically just replacing lightning strike, right? Like it's not actually changing anything about how the deck plays. True. Uh, I mean, the three life might matter a lot. Uh, I you often get to lock mono red underneath their own eidolon. Mm. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't change the clock. They all their damage sources are all identical. How much life they gain from the spell is the only thing that's changing. <laughs> Huh. All right, so so much for Pro Tour Murders at Karlov Manor. I disagree with, uh, I think Safranolov was saying that this is the least impactful set in recent memory. There's plenty of cards showed up, right? I think he was discussing, I think he was discussing standard, um, which we don't play, but. I see. It, for Pioneer, this, this deck was super uh, influential. The deck that um, Seth Manfield's team, whatever they were called, uh, Paul Rietzel's idea, just super, super cool. Um, so that was fun and, you know, upgrades to existing archetypes, new archetypes possible. I think this set is super cool. I, I have no complaints. 
All right, well, then let's get on to the complaints. Uh, Modern Horizons 3. <laughs> Perfect segue. So Modern Horizons 3. <laughs> I guess every other, every other year we'll be afflicted with something like this. Um, and the formula is starting to come into focus. They will reprint fetch lands at rare. So they did enemies last time. Uh, this time it's allied. Allied fetches coming back. To keep modern affordable, you see. Um, they're also just going to soak you for whatever they can, so that means that the elementals from MH2, which were mythic in MH2, are back at mythic in MH3. Pretty sure that I was trying to convince you this was going to happen, David, and you were like, no, no, they would never do that. That was an MH2 cycle. And I'm like, yes, but it will sell packs, so they're definitely going to do it. And indeed, they are doing it. Are they printing Fury, even though it's banned? I assume they will. I mean, unless they can it's suddenly too late, it. right? I mean, they've, they've already sent it to the the printer yeah. right yeah i assume it's going to be there but we don't know for sure yet okay so that's like part of what makes a modern horizons set now with mh2 we also just saw blatant power creep targeted even at specific archetypes like they just pick existing archetypes and just amp up the juice on whatever cards they think could impact that archetype so what we've seen from this early sneak peek is okay elves is a deck that people like in legacy um, they added the the symbiote last time, but they didn't add the Priest of Titania last time. So fix that. Now MH3, you can play Priest of Titania. That's a now a modern card. Is that interesting? Is that good? I don't know. It doesn't do anything for me. Uh, I don't know how you feel about that, David. I mean, I played it in the original Urza set, so I have a soft spot. I think the art is beautiful. Um, one toughness creatures, right? It's a tough time out there uh, in this world for them, but it is a very powerful card. So I, cards like that, that if you don't have an answer, you know, can can win the game or, or basically win the game the next turn, I think are worth thinking about. So someone's going to 5-0 in the first week with Priest of Titania. That, that, that is a lock. I would bet my life on it. Will it just be an elf deck or will it be something more interesting? Yeah, an elf deck. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. I, 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 I think an elf deck is interesting. <laughs> I mean, you're right. Like, I appreciate that they just stick with the classic uh, Rebecca Gay art from from way back in the day, right? This card has always been insanely powerful. It's iconic, so I shouldn't hate on it so much. I'm just, I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't do anything for me emotionally, but that's just me. What else are we seeing? Well, we're seeing that in order to make sure that the set has an impact on the format, they gotta to juice it up with some free spells, so... There's a card, Flare of Cultivation, which, based on that templating, I assume this is a cycle of flares. It's one green-green sorcery. You may sacrifice a non-token green creature rather than pay the spell's mana cost. So right away, you can see that's going to be playable, because whatever it does, it does it for free, for no mana. And it's 3 CMC, so it works with your Cascade or whatever you got to do. I, I'm already kind of over this. I don't even want to read what the card does. Like, I'm just like annoyed by this. Well, this card is just Cultivate, right? <laughs> but it can be cast for free if you sack a green creature. Correct. But if this is what it takes to make a card interesting and modern, just like take any spell and like make it free. Yeah, well, that's where <laughs> we... I mean, okay. that, that genie's out of the bottle, man. I got some bad news for you. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> I, I actually think this card is, again, I get ready to record this and just shove it in my face. This doesn't seem like it's very breakable to me. Like, putting an extra basic land into play is not particularly powerful in Modern. Uh, getting a second one into your hand. I mean, Cultivate is not that powerful of a card. 
Needing to sack a creature that is non-token and is the same color is actually like a very real cost. I know there's that two one that when it dies, it also fetches a basic. So you could like on turn two, play that in this. You get to double ramp and have another land in your hand. What about the colony garden on turn one into this? It's a token. Oh no, geez. I played myself there. Okay. See? Non-token. All right. Dryad Arbor. No, that doesn't get you anywhere. You can now uh, play the O3 that puts a land into play and then sack this. So you could have four mana in play on turn three. Oh, the Greaser. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. So you think it's being saved by the non-token clause? I don't know about saved. I, they're actually making it interesting problem to solve as opposed to solitude, right? Which is just like, are you playing white cards in your deck? <laughs> and you probably have to play four solitudes for the rest of modern. It's like, oh, okay, that, that seems like a reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you're on the record as this, this card is hard to break. What is safe, basically. I also like cultivate. I don't know. Like, it's just a casual player it's just like always like a fine card to play it gets you to five mana <laughs> i'm sure no one's gonna be like you know cultivating into some five power doofy legend but um <laughs> all right so that is flare of cultivation I look- well hang on what was the original cultivate from kamigawa it was also a uh arcane spell kodama's reach kodama's reach that's the card that really wooed me the artwork on that is just so iconic right that little yeah branch hand um yes all right so that's flare of cultivation i look forward to seeing what the rest of this flare cycle does moving on to something closer to my heart eldrazi are back it's been a while since we've been able to say that i have been like playing a lot of eldrazi when i get a chance to go to the lgs i'm usually bringing the eldrazi deck these days (laughs) And it's interesting because, you know, there's plenty of good players at the LGS. They're usually playing Amulet or something like that. And you can just watch their store credit just keeps going up and up and up. You know, they were like early investors in Bitcoin or something. And now they're just rolling in store credit. And then there's me. And I'm there with my um, <laughs> Eternal Scourges and my Eldrazi Mimics. And I'm serum powdering away looking for my one good card, Eldrazi Temple. And... Yeah, it's um, I have a much different uh, financial outlook. I'm I'm struggling to stay afloat at the, at the LGS. <laughs> um, hoping to retire with some responsible money in my account. Uh, got some savings bonds. Got a certificate to deposit. That sort of thing. But yeah, it's it's been a tough road for Eldrazi. The only card that is left over from the broken era is the land Eldrazi Temple. One of the two lands. <laughs> exactly. And the creatures are just like a joke, right? Like even even when you cheat them into play, they're just kind of a joke. <laughs> like the number of times that I like got my great start with Thought Not Seer, take their best spell into reality smasher and still just like lost to a fury um was was quite sad. So I'm hoping that the return of Eldrazi juiced up to MH3 standards means I'm back in business, but I think it's going to have to come from a land slot. Like they're going to have to give me another land based on, I, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's enough to just like improve the creatures. What do you think, David? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, without the mana, I don't think there's an Eldrazi deck that's ever going to come back because that, you got to remember the Bant Eldrazi or whatever it was. Yes. <laughs> um, was also playing like, <laughs> noble hierarch and stuff i mean you can't do that anymore either there's no there's very few mana creatures other than the the two toughest mana creature from 
the de facto last Modern Horizon set, which was Lord of the Rings. Hmm. Well, we do get a land. We get a snow-covered waste, a basic snow land. It's uh, big. Okay. We get a new two-drop, so I, I don't have to play turn one Eldrazi Temple into endless one for two, which I've done that many times, many a time. Now I can go turn one Eldrazi Temple into It that Heralds the End, which is a two-drop. It's one and a colorless for a two-two Eldrazi Drone. Colorless spells you cast with mana value 7 or greater cost 1 less to cast. Okay, I won't be using that. Except with my endless ones. <laughs> or, in addition to all that, other colorless creatures you control get plus 1, plus 1. So this will pump my Mutavolts, it will pump up my uh, Battery Shapers, <laughs> Eternal Scourges. I, I don't know, I mean, I'm not actually convinced that this is better than the cards I'm currently playing. Which is not saying much. I have a rules question. How does this work with Endless One? So I go to cast Endless One, and then when it's put on the stack, it's a seven mana spell, so it's one less than this. Like, can I ever pay six mana for an Endless One that makes a seven seven? Or how does that work? I mean, in my hand, it's an, it costs zero, right? So I, so I have to minimum pay seven for an Endless One, and then I get an extra plus one plus one counter. No, the first thing. Uh, I think you pay six. You choose X and then... So I can put it on the stack, X is 7, and then but it only costs 6 mana to pay that cost. Strictly speaking, it's not on the stack yet, but you've chosen okay. the mode, you've chosen X, and then in the process of paying the costs, that's when you pay the 6 and then it's on the stack. Yeah, I guess the one card that I would maybe play with this card is the next card we're going to talk about, um, because we can pay even less than 6 uh, to get quite a powerful effect. All right, take us there. All right, the new Emrakul. Emrakul, the world anew, legendary creature Eldrazi. 12 mana for a 12-12. When you cast this spell, gain control of all creatures target player controls. Flying, protection from spells, and from permanents that were cast this turn. Uh, and then when it leaves the battlefield, sacrifice all creatures you control. Uh, madness, pay 6 colorless or how do, how do we say that six diamonds six colorless I'm pips sure. yeah <laughs> yeah six colorless yeah okay so I mean, that's like kind of coming out of the blue with that madness clause is that going to be a theme or is that just like a flavorful thing with emrakul i think you need the madness for this card to be playable okay so can you make six colorless i don't know the answer to that question also, does this reduce the six pips? Or is the does the Eldrazi drone re reduce? I guess it doesn't. So it still costs six wing wangs or whatever you want to call them. Oh, because it doesn't reduce. Yeah, it, it reduces it, a generic geez, cost, right? right? And so this is specifically the six colorless <laughs> hexagons. All right, let's just assume that we have the menace enabled. Like, how how good is this? If I'm looking at that middle clause, protection from spells, from all spells, and from permanents that were cast this turn, so solitude basically, if the solitude was cast, if the solitude was like ephemerated, it, it can just pick off the Emrakul. I think that the statement that were cast this turn is modifying spells and permanents. I don't think it has protection from spells after your turn is over. Really? I, I think th this card is written such that the trigger happens, you gain control of all the cards, and it comes into play. 
And then on the next turn, if your opponent kills it, they can cause you to sacrifice all your creatures. And grammatically, I, it's very poorly worded because I see the ambiguity, but aren't all spells cast this turn? I mean, that, that would be redundant to say that. Do you know what I'm saying? Aren't all permanents always cast this turn? <laughs> no, they're not. I though. mean, yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying. It's a, it's a fair point. I mean, it makes a big difference, right? It's like always protected from all spells at all times. That's how I'm reading it. Um, yeah, I mean, it must be, I guess. Now, the permanent thing, how to get around that? I guess Oblivion Ring style cards get around it. Um, Wait, no. Like you say, ephemerating no, solitude. That's not true. Gosh, okay, that doesn't get around it. Jeez. Well, it does if you cast the permanent and then like do it on their turn. Gosh, it's actually very hard to get rid of this card, right? Is that ephemerate line the only line that actually does it? And the O-ring line. Well, no, O-ring doesn't doesn't work though. That's the thing, because it was cast this turn. Oh, I thought you meant Oblivion Stone. No, I was I was just I was falling directly into Emrakul's trap. I was thinking I would get around it by playing. Oh yeah, Oblivion. I'm I'm saying oh, Oblivion Stone. You just cast it on your turn okay. if you're Tron, and then. Yeah, Exile works. it on the following turn. I mean, sweepers. Gotcha. Seal of Doom, I guess. <laughs> Is this <a> new <laughs> I mean, edict effects. I don't know. Ah, right. Something non-targeting. Okay. I mean, the thing is, in theory, it's taking control of creatures, so. So pick your poison. The Vein Ripper meta has already solved Emrakul, is what I'm hearing. Right. Correct. Pick your poison. Perfect. Okay. All right, apart from that, is it worth trying to madness this, or is that just too complicated? I mean, I think you need to do it. I think you need to pay six mana to get this effect. I don't think you're going to cast it for 12. I mean, 12 is a lot. Even Tron doesn't play like old school Emrakul. They play a uh, singleton, you know, 10 mana card. Yeah. They don't play very many of those either. I mean, how are you going to get to 12 mana? So you need to have discard outlets and a a shit ton of colorless mana. No deck that currently exists does that. Um, Correct. But if you're playing Urza Saga, you could get your Underworld cookbook, so that's not too hard. Uh, so like Urza Saga, Eldrazi Temple, you're almost there. I mean, the, if you want to play Smuggler's Copter. Um, <laughs> I know it's like the talk of Pioneer it was, and it flamed out there, but I'm still playing it in Modern. I always have been. So yeah, Smuggler's Copter was in the Pro Tour winning deck. It didn't flame out there. Yeah, <laughs> it's like giving Smuggler's Copter a Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, <laughs> hey, it'll take it, man. First place at a Pro Tour and then quietly shuffled off to the side. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, what else? What else we got, David? All right. Psychic Frog. Blue, black for a 1-2 creature type frog. Whenever frog deals combat damage to a player or planeswalker, draw a card. That's awesome. Discard a card, put a plus one, plus one counter on Psychic Frog, and then exile three cards from your graveyard. Psychic Frog gains flying until end of turn. So Shades of Dr. Teeth from way back in the day, Psychotog. Mm-hmm. This is Psychic Frog. Ha ha ha. Uh, but of course, one mana cheaper because we have to sell cards in modern. It has two toughness, so it survives a bunch of other random things. Um, it gets permanent counters put on it uh, as opposed to getting temporarily buffed. Um and yeah, it's like a, a Ninja of the Deep Hours, right? So you, you could even damage their Planeswalker and still get to draw. Like, they've kind of done everything they can for this card. If it's not good enough, that's kind of ominous. 
Well, which line of text makes it good enough? I feel like if it was just the first line drawing cards on damage, it's not close to playable. Right, so I feel like you kind of need the second line of text to be a really important synergy piece for your deck. You need all of the lines of text <laughs> for this card to be good, I think. Because it also could be a finisher if you have a way to like discard a bunch of cards and then give it flying to fly over or whatever and you know get in the last five points of damage or something. I, I hear what you're saying. The third line just feels like a fun bonus to me. But the second line, right? That's, that's the key line, right? You need to actually want to discard. Yeah. Thinking about your um, chalk outline combo you were telling us about. <laughs> I mean, better than this works. <laughs> this works with chalk outline, yes. Um, you can even discard cards you'd prefer to have in your graveyard, right? Like the 2 1 vampire or. Oh, Bloodgast? The. 4-2 that comes back when an artifact comes into play, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I guess I could put this in crab vine. It's like not terrible. Not good, but it's not terrible. See? Okay, I'm, I'm more interested than I was. All right, take my money. <laughs> crab vine is, is sucking me back in. You see, like, <laughs> what are the two decks that are the most juiced from this early set of previews? It's Eldrazi Stompy and crab vine. <laughs> this is my They're decks right you. here. They yes. come for my money. <laughs> All right, on to the next power creep. A Johnny and a Kettle Pariah. It's one and a white for a 1-2 legendary cat warrior. When it enters, you create a 2-1 cat warrior. What the heck, man? It's okay, it's two mana, you get a 1-2 and a 2-1. Yes. And then on top of that, whenever one or more other cats you control die, you have the option, you don't have to, but you can, you can exile a Johnny, return him flipped as a planeswalker. He comes back with three loyalty. Plus two is to put a plus one plus one counter on each cat you control. A zero creates a two one white cat warrior creature token. And when this happens, if you happen to control another red permanent, your Ajani deals damage equal to the number of creatures you control to any target. And minus four, each opponent chooses an artifact, creature, and enchantment, and a planeswalker from among the non land permanents they control then sacrifices the rest. Yeah, really cool card. I mean, obviously a ton of text. I mean, to me, the zero ability is where I want to be, right? We're making bodies. We're picking off, in theory, cheap creatures. You can The fact that you can go face with it or hit Planeswalker that's about to ultimate or whatever, I, it, it just seems really good. So you're going to want red permanence in play. Probably um, <laughs> some sort of pirate monkey. <laughs> um and then you're just like crapping out a 2-1 that does 2 damage for 0 uh, loyalty is just absolutely incredible. Do you see the backside, the Planeswalker side, as more of like a consolation prize? Like you play the front side just for 2 bodies, try to swarm them, and then when your cat dies you have this Planeswalker? Or do you think it's like really powerful and you should be trying to proactively sack a cat? <laughs> I don't know about proactively. Um, I like that you also like playing a second Ajani with your Ajani in play, like immediately flips it. Mm. Interesting. I, I just think this card like actually plays well. Like it's the rare legend that plays really well with four of each other. Also, let's say whatever they killed your two one with their Ren minus and you flipped your Ajani. And now you play another Ajani that makes two bodies. And then this makes another cat. If you have a red permanent, it's doing let's say you have the, the the pirate monkey play, then you're zeroing this to make a two one that does four damage anywhere. Like 
That's just insane. Also, another Ajani gives you two cats to absorb the plus one, plus one counters from the plus two. So I think this is like a weird legend that you always want to play four of because it works so well with itself. Yeah, I'm kind of annoyed that the flip is optional. That feels like a like a buff they didn't have to do. They just did that so there's no downside, no risk. Yeah. But I mean, even just like this on two, okay, they don't want to kill anything. You play another one, you flip it, then you plus two it. So now you have a two, three, and a three, two, plus a planeswalker in play. Like, that seems really good to me. I mean, it all sounds good. I, I guess the thing holding it back is that you have to play a bunch of cats. So, But you don't have to. This makes two cats at a time. So the second one also makes a cat. So you're actually adding plus one, plus one to three different cats. Plus you have a planeswalker. Wild Nakatl is a cat that is seeing play right now in the um, five-color leyline whatever list. <laughs> um, all right. All right. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I while playing Eldrazi at the LGS, uh, the cat players are in the 04 bracket next to me, <laughs> and um, they could also use the help, so I'm glad that <laughs> MH3 is coming to help them. I'm guessing this card is going to cost a zillion dollars, so hopefully they've uh, invested their money well. Next up is a reprint, but new to modern. It's Lelia the Blade Reforged, 2 in a red for a 2-2 Spirit Warrior with haste. It's a legend. Um, whenever Lelia the Blade Reforged attacks... Exile out the top card of your library. You may play that card this turn. Whenever one or more cards are put into exile from your library and or from your graveyard, you put a plus one, plus one counter on Lelia. I confess I, I have not played this card. Um, I know it's a high picking cube, but beyond that, I actually don't know what its legacy is so far. Yeah, super powerful commander card. I don't know anything about it. Uh, it seems super powerful whenever I've seen it played in those formats. Um, I'm guessing people at least try it here. Like, Mana Elf into this seems very good if it doesn't die. Um, there are shenanigans where you can just, like, exile multiple cards a turn, so this becomes super powerful. Becomes super large, right? But yes. you don't. you only get the extra card once, right? Correct. Okay. It seems like a fine addition to the format. I don't think it's... I think it's a very good reprint. I think even a card like this that sees a lot of play in, in some of these, you know, other types of formats, just making it cheaper is worthwhile as well. Last but not least, Scurry of Gremlins. It's a format and enchantment that does stuff with energy. Uh, I don't think this one's actually playable, but energy is back. Yeah, I'm guessing it'll be a theme in the limited environment. We have to say that these Modern Horizons sets have been very good limited uh, formats, so I'm I'm expecting this to be a a high pick and limited. So Eldrazi and Energy, those are like two neglected archetypes. Well, Energy is not an archetype. It has not existed in any non-rotating format ever. It was the definition of a parasitic format. It was very, very good to the point that I think it was permanently damaging to standard. Uh, and then it's been not even close to good enough in, in uh, Pioneer. We're not going to talk about modern. Well, <laughs> I guess what I meant is that both Eldrazi and Energy would be like among the most impactful mechanics of their time. Yeah, that's, that's fair. If you don't have like a long memory, like we do, you just like would not know that because they have no presence at all in modern. So it's nice to see them at least paying attention to these archetypes. <laughs> um, I hope that at least one energy card from the past will still be playable in whatever energy deck is forced upon us from MH3. It's probably either <laughs> hub, <laughs> but uh, that's it. 
Okay, uh, we also got new stuff from sets that are coming very soon to a Pioneer League near you. Outlaws of Thunder Junction releases on April 16th. And they even gave us a quick look at uh, Bloombro, which is actually coming out mid-July, so a little bit earlier than usual. Yeah, let's go through the cards here. They spoiled five cards from the new set and one card from Bloombro. All right, Tiny Bones. <laughs> tiny Bones, the pickpocket. Skeleton Rogue, so we're getting some skeleton support. <laughs> yep. 1-1 one, one Death Touch. Whenever it deals combat damage to a player, you may cast target non-land permanent card from that player's graveyard, and mana of any type can be spent to cast that spell. So important note, does not say without paying its mana costs. So <laughs> on turn one, right, you play this. On They play a tap land. This is not going to have a spell to target unless you thought sees them and hit a one drop. That's like the only way this can do stuff early in the game. So is it fair to assume that this card is just safe, right? Because you can't control what your opponent is doing, right? They just, they may have nothing in their deck that even is eligible for this trigger. True. Yes. I, I just think like there is a rogues deck right now that mills your opponent, right? That's what it wants to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and this plays well, this plays very well with that theme. The problem with that rogue's deck is it's actually very good. It just literally cannot beat Phoenix because Phoenix gets is just powers it up. Like <laughs> the Phoenix players can't believe this incredible. <laughs> it's like my graveyard is full. You know, I'm playing treasure cruise, right? And then I'm casting Phoenix from my graveyard. So it's just like turn three, the rogue's player takes lethal damage from Phoenix. Um, but if they ever ban Phoenix, then I think the rogue's deck would actually be like a tier two or tier one ish deck. Um, and this card would be very good in it. Well, that's all fine, but what about the skeletons deck, David? It's go time with the skeletons, <laughs> man. I, I, I think people need to, need to get real about the skeletons. I mean, this seems way better than that 6-2 menace what we were looking at from the last set. Yes. Uh, yeah, what you're hoping to do, I think, is, is Thought sees a cantrip, right? And then, and then cast it. Then, then that, this card is very interesting. Still not broken, though. Like... It's just a typhoid rat. That's my concern. And that's just not good enough. It's a black one drop for Mox Amber, but that's also just not really been that exciting. You know, Ashnod is also in that same space. But I don't feel like that's actually building to anything. There's no synergy between those cards. Uh, I don't know. He's very cute and he's a very funny character, but I don't think, I just don't see it for Tiny Bones. Yeah, we'll have to see what other support gets printed for either rogues or skeletons. <laughs> Next up is the World Champion card. So Nathan Stoyer, um, World Champion, is now immortalized on Duelist of the Mind. One in a blue for a human advisor with flying and vigilance. Star three. The power is equal to the number of cards you've drawn this turn. Whenever you commit a crime, you may draw a card. If you do, discard a card. This ability triggers only once each turn. Uh, We don't know what commit a crime means, but what about the rest of it? Just the base stats. So if you don't do anything, it is a two mana, one, three flying vigilant creature. That's pretty bad. Um, one, three on your turn. Zero, three on yeah. your turn. Yeah. So the vigilance is, you know, fine in terms of being a warm body to get in front of something, but it, it's very hard for it to trade. Um, it is a human, but humans don't draw extra cards. So I have tooled around a little bit with this, uh, the profs. 
Identical the two mana enchantment. Yeah. Yeah. This card would fit pretty well in there, I have to say. Um, other than that, unless the crime thing is good, this card unfortunately is not playable, which makes me think that the crime thing is actually going to be pretty good because typically they make these cards powerful. True. Like Paulo is very good. Um, yeah. Paulo's card. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess the jury was still out. Um, wait and see on that. I mean, in brainstorm formats, is this like a Delver replacement or am I just like really lost in the sauce? No, because it's, I mean, it's a two drop, so you would have to, yeah. So it's like if you had like a Jace like effect, right? Like this card is actually then insane, like four, three flying vigilant blocks to preserve Jace if you want to. Hmm. But it's just like, seems so weak for modern, just lightning bolt it. I'm wondering if committing a crime is something that needs to be triggered by another card or if they're introducing a new like mechanic, you can just like choose to, I declare that I commit a crime now and like, well, can you just like steal from your, steal from your opponent? <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, I've committed a crime. I would like the loot, please. Yeah. This is like a silver border card. It's like whenever you commit a felony or a misdemeanor, <laughs> you the get bonuses. <laughs> Let's assume you're drawing an extra card a turn. Let's just, somehow that's always happening. A two mana two three that is an O three blocker is not actually that good. That's the problem. Like mm-hmm. one card is not enough for this card to be interesting to me. Right. Like if you told me, okay, for the rest of the game, you just get this is always a two three. Um, I'd be like, okay, I, this card is not playable. So the crime thing has to be very useful. Like cheap to commit the crime. You have to find a way to take advantage of the looting, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. All right, next up, Fibblethip lost on a range. One blue blue for a legendary creature, Homunculus. So 1-1 one, one with Ward 2. So 1-1 one, one for 3 with Ward 2. This card had better be good. You may look at the top card of your library any time. Okay. It's a step in the right direction. <laughs> the top card of your library has plot. The plot cost is equal to its mana cost. You may plot non-land cards from the top of your library. No idea what that means, but let's assume it's like Fortel, where, you know, it's morphing it in some way. All right, we can't evaluate this, but this is cheap access to that effect of playing off the top, I guess. If if plot does that. <laughs> sure. Well, we know that you plot them off the top. That That's for sure. <laughs> that for much we know. For its mana cost. For its mana cost, so there's no cheating anything there. You're, you're, oh, right. You better be able to turn that into a card okay. since you're paying full freight for the plot. Interesting. What was that card, the two-mana white card from the last set that had the future sight on it for creatures? Oh, uh, the enchantment, and then you can play yeah. two power creatures from the top of your deck? Yeah. I mean, I liked that, but obviously it's not done anything yet. Hmm. Maybe this effect is just not as good as I think it is. Anyway, we'll have to see what plot does. Moving on, Oko the ringleader. Shoutouts to whoever just like came up with this world and just like, all right. The showcase frames are like these wanted posters from the old west. So it was just amazing to see like Oko on, on the most wanted poster. And he's back. He's back as a planeswalker. I guess he's the planeswalker from the set. He's not too good this time. Unless I'm misreading these abilities. What do you think, David? We need <laughs> Damon here to declare if this card's unplayable <laughs> to really understand. 
we need Dan to declare vampires unplayable and then Damon to declare a blue green uh, mythic rares unplayable. <laughs> All right, Oko the Ringleader, four mana instead of three, so two green blue for a three loyalty legendary planeswalker Oko. At the beginning of combat on your turn, Oko the Ringleader becomes a copy of up to one target creature you control until end of turn, except he has hexproof. Okay, that's interesting. Plus one, draw two cards. If you've committed a crime this turn, discard a card. Otherwise, discard two cards. So we know plus one, draw two, discard two is not actually very good on a four-mana Planeswalker because it's on the blue um, Tez right now. Minus one, create a 3-3 Elk creature token. That ability is exactly Garuk, correct? It's a four-mana, three loyalty Planeswalker that minus ones to make a beast. Mm, true. Functionally an Elk. True. And then minus five for each other non-land permanent you control, create a token that's a copy of that permanent. So that is cool. Um, it requires a bunch of other permanents to be in play, and Oko has to have five loyalty. So it's a it's a strange planeswalker in the sense that it really requires a bunch of other stuff. Its passive ability requires you to have another creature in play that you want to attack with. It's um Plus one requires you to commit a crime. And then its ultimate requires a bunch of non-land permanents uh, that aren't Oko. So these all require a bunch of non-Oko things to be in play to do stuff. Unless you can just commit a crime by, you know, stealing your opponent's french fries or something. Sure. I mean, the minimum you can do here is you can minus Oko, make an elk that blocks for it. And then on your turn, you Oko becomes an elk as well. <laughs> I think the problem though is if it takes combat damage, doesn't it lose loyalty? Or how does that work? How does it work when a planeswalker? Because normally a planeswalker gets like indestructible or has some text on it or something, right? I, I guess I, as usual, I don't really understand the rules of this game that I've played a lot. I noticed that as well. You're thinking of like Gideon and Sarkhan both have some specific claws that prevent them from losing loyalty when they become a creature. I thought they did, but maybe they're just not targetable so they can't be killed by creature spells, and that's what the Hexproof is doing here. Well, I'm wondering if like the, if the actual template of become a copy means that Oko is no longer a Planeswalker when he's a copy. Oh, Maybe the rules yeah. don't apply to him or something. Sure. Let's just assume that's the case. But that also means you really have to make sure that you're not attacking a creature that can trade, right? Or you lose your Oko. Uh... Right, he he can be killed when he's like an elk. if they if they have a graveyard yeah. trespasser and you attack with a Oko that's copying an elk and they block, then you lose Oko. I mean, they lose they lose a trespasser. That sounds right. So what you're hoping to copy is something that has hexproof and evasion, or excuse me, Oko is giving you hexproof. You want a card with evasion or unblockable or a really big butt, right? So it's not going to die in combat. Right, and this is optional. You don't have to do this. Uh, right. It also, if it copies, a, it can't copy a legend. So I think you need to make use of that passive somehow. I don't know what the best way to do that is. Oh. Yeah, that plus one just being Tezzeret is haunting. That's a haunting comparison. <laughs> we need to stay far away from this Oko. That's, it must be terrible. Okay. Oko. Oh, that seems fine. <laughs> um, finally, Hell to Pay. X and a red sorcery. Hell to pay deals X damage to target creature. Create a number of tapped treasure tokens equal to the amount of excess damage dealt to that creature this way. Um, that's fine. I don't think this is good enough for constructed. The rate's just too bad. Yeah, this seems like a really cool card in uh, Commander. 
All right, finally, they teased one card, um, a mythic from Bloomboro, which has this adorable Toronto Maple Leaf style expansion symbol. It's a big old bear, um, Lumra, Bellow of the Woods. It's a six drop, an elemental bear, legend, uh, vigilance, reach, star, star, power and toughness equal to the number of lands you control. And then it has this gorgeous line of text. When Lumra enters, mill four cards, then return all land cards from your graveyard to the battlefield tap. So it ETBs, I guess ETB is, is incorrect lingo. It just, it ease, it ease. It ease, yeah. <laughs> and um, you get a... Spl- it consumes MDMA and then begins to... <laughs> you just get a splendid wreck when it, when it enters. I mean, that sounds great, but you were just telling me about the standard deck, David. What, what does the standard deck do? The aftermath analyst one. Oh man, I I don't even want to say what it does. It does everything. Um, yeah, I I guess this would fit in, in some kind of shell like that. I I just can't imagine this card being like playable in Pioneer, like six mana for a card that I mean, these massive creatures that don't have trample just suck so bad. You can't even attack into your opponent. <laughs> I guess it has vigilance, but. I don't know. This just seems really good to me. Isn't this like way better than the Green Cavalier? Uh, I mean, it's more expensive. But you get all the lands back. I mean, imagine if you played this in addition to the Green Cavalier. I mean, the problem with the Cavalier is not that it wasn't generating enough mana. The key part of the Cavalier is that when it died, it gave you another uh, six mana sorcery that let you hit Karn or Cura. This never actually gets you cards. It just gives you lands. Well, the lands could be special lands. Um, they could. They could all be uh, caves that you can sacrifice to uh, discover. Exactly. You could You could use your access mana now to flashback storm the festival. Anyway, the point is, it's it's clearly a powerful E effect. <laughs> Sounds so stupid. <laughs> ETP effect. Yeah, I guess my my suspicion always with cards that cost six mana or up is if the payoff is more ramp then i'm less interested so you need yeah. to make sure that the lands are not ramp they are doing the things that dan's describing mm. they are providing a win condition um you know they're, they're part of some combo they're generating a bunc of mana because you've lowered cobra in play etc etc what about your uh red green turtle power deck with the draconic destiny i mean you're getting up to six pretty often there right uh, yeah, you actually are. I don't know if you'd play this card in that list. Hmm. I guess it does get trampled from Huntsman's whatever. <laughs> True. <laughs> okay, uh, so much for a Bloomboro. Uh, we have a, two more sets coming out before that, which is just a few months away. With that in mind, uh, let's check in on what's happening with the current set, Murders at Karlov Manor. So, No More Lies put up a... A strong performance at 47% of the Pro Tour. Archdrew's Charm, though. This was a card that we thought was going to make an impact in perhaps multiple formats. Seeing a lot of interesting results in Modern, but we're going to start in Pioneer, because this is a card that you've actually been playing with a lot. So just to remind people, this is a five-mode charm. It's green, 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 instant. And the modes are to search your library for a creature or land and reveal it. If it's a land, you put it on the battlefield tapped. If it's not a land, um, you put it into your hand. So it's Eladamri's Call or a never-before-seen three-mana Sylvan Scrying that goes directly into play. There's no card like that, essentially. No. 
Mode 2, put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature you control. It deals damage equal to its power to target creature you don't control. And Mode 3, exile target artifact or enchantment. Versatility is clearly there. The build around potential seems to all be from the first mode, right? Yeah, but it's nice that you build around this card that has these powerful effects, and then it also just gives you these corner case, like you have a removal spell for anything, basically. As long as you have enough power, you can kill any artifact or enchantment if you need to. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so given that we have that um, a use for it, right, and we've rounded our deck, can we confidently go in with four Archdewis Charm, or how do you approach this card? Yeah, this is a card that we, Rhett and I, were tooling around with. Rhett's a friend of the podcast, and I was just saying, like, we need to add more Archdewis Charms to all these shells that were being proposed by him or, or me. Um, so I just went up to the full four Archdewis Charm and just improved the deck immensely. So the first list I want to talk about is is playing Leyline of the Guild Pact. Uh, this is a card I'm combining with uh, Archdewis Charm for multiple reasons. In this deck, this is a four Nykthos deck. So Archdewis Charm kind of gets to do double duty. If you have the Nykthos Leyline of the Guild Pack opening, you've got all this mana. That's that's great. Sometimes you have all that mana, but you don't have a creature. Charm can find the creature. But when you have the Guild Pack opening without the Nykthos, you can choose to Charm on their EOT for Nykthos. And all of a sudden, you've generated a ton of mana out of nowhere. Um, and then again, it does it does all these corner case things. But it basically, like helps the fact that your deck has very like polarized hands by like finding the piece that you don't need. Um, so th this is a list that's taking advantage of the Leyline of the Guild Pack plus Leyline Binding. Uh, as people who listen to this podcast know, I don't like making these all-in combo decks. I like to have interaction. So we get to build our mono green list. So eight elves, four Kiora, four Old Growth Troll. Um... Without the, the top end of Karn, though, we need more interaction. So we get to play four Leyline Bindings in this deck. It's basically just Swords of Plowshares, but for any permanent. And they don't get any life. And then we just have a suite of creatures we can tutor for. We have a Lanoir Green Widow, which is another super value card with uh, Leyline out. You just Remind us what that does, <laughs> that Green Widow. <laughs> two in a green for a 4-3 Reach Trample. And then seven in a green, return it from your graveyard to play Tapped. And it's reduced by, that 7 in the green is reduced by the number of uh, different land types that you have. Hmm. It's a good value beater. Yeah, it's a good value beater. It also has trample and it has reach. So it can like, for instance, block Phoenix. Um, it's good against spirits if that, that deck exists anymore. It doesn't seem like it does. With Kiora, it's just like a stream of, of four power creatures, right? And with this and Old Girls Troll, they, they all trample. So your clock is just very hard to deny, right? You attack with a 4-3 Trampler, whatever. They trade, they take some damage, you buy it back, you draw again with Cure, etc. Um, and then we just have a tutor package of one Elish Norn, again with Cure, it's incredible, uh, and Leyline Binding, it's incredible. Titan of Industry, uh, Voracious Hydra is like a tutorable removal spell. If you don't have enough power for the charm to kill it itself, you, or you can make it a, a huge Hydra. And then two Hydroid Crazies, um, this was sort of our twist against control. You just have these cards that, that control, like, you know, they can't counter the trigger, so they can only counter the creature. So you just get all these, uh, cards. It's also main deck lifelink. Uh, if you're, excuse me, main deck life gain. 
uh, if you're trying to stabilize against uh, Convoke. And then again, your sideboard has all these creatures that are tutorable, including our sort of anti-control package of bringing in a, another Murex and then three uh, Tyrannix Rex. And then you can tutor for your Eidolon, you can tutor for your Knight of Autumn, you can tutor for your Containment Priest, etc. This core makes intuitive sense to me of Elves plus Nykthos plus Leyland of the Guild Pact and Archer's Charm. I just, I just didn't think you believed in it. I thought you were like very opposed to the Leyland of the Guild Pact. So have you found that it actually is, it works? Yeah. Um, it's actually pretty sweet. Like the, uh, Nylea's presences are also sort of like, you're not all in on the guild pack. You can just elf into Kiora into like Nylea's presence, Leyline binding. Um, but yeah, it, the charm is the key. So it solves the problem of all these hands that quote unquote do nothing because it like just picks up the piece that you don't have. Mm-hmm. And you normally have like one of the pieces, right? You'll have, between Nykthos or Leyline, you're probably you're gonna have one or the other. Charm is just a natural turn to play with Elf. Uh, all of our lands make green except for Nykthos itself. Um, and then you just have these unbeatable hands that you know sometimes you just you know roll super hot, and then no deck can really compete with you. Like if you really you know nut draw them. So what happens if you look at your hand and it doesn't have Leyline with the Guild Pact in it, and let's say it doesn't have the presence either? You can still have like turn one elf into turn two Kiora into, you know, old growth troll, right? Or, or turn three, um, Elspeth, which is actually incredible with Kiora in play. Elspeth? Which Elspeth? Elishnorn? Oh, sorry, not Elspeth. Oh, uh, okay. Elishnorn. Gotcha. Yeah, it's interesting. So I think when I was envisioning this line of like elf, charm, Nykthos, Leyland of the Guild Pact, I kind of thought the Leyland would just be there. It's like a do-nothing card that contributes green pips. But what we've seen is that it does more than that, right? And there's been some spectacular lists that I thought was going to be a joke, you know, right away, like 5-0 in Modern, with um, leading into this interaction between Leyline Binding and Leyline of the Guild Pact. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute in the Modern section. So, like, you're actually leading into it. Like, you're playing cards that can only be cast with access to this extra mana. Um, whereas I was thinking it would just be like a straight mono green ramp show. I mean, you could build that list and I'm sure it's fine. Uh, you, you saw that it did not do very well against the field. I think the, that list just struggles against the type of interaction people can play. There's a lot of like yeah. singleton cards that are hard for mono green to answer without Karn, right. To be able to kind of tutor up the right solutions. Um, I mean, we have native lands, right? We have breeding pool, we have temple garden, so we can cast a line binding Without Leyline. Just pay three mana for it. It's not the end of the world. Do you ever just cast Leyline of the Guild Pact or no? Oh, yeah. I mean, in the late game, you just like try to bait counter spells like from control, right? You didn't draw, you draw, it was your eighth card, right? I hate Leyline designs. This is so stupid. I've ranted about that many times. Just tap out on four, cast it. If they don't counter it, then you've just added a bunch of mana with your Nykthos. If they do counter it, just trade card for card. I mean, that's all any any four mana spell is going to do against counter spells. Okay, so it's powerful enough that you're you're leaning on it here in this mostly mono green list, but you actually feature that interaction also in the second list that you want to talk about here. Yeah, so as people who listen to this podcast know, I love in search for greatness. No, well, I think I kind of hate it, but yeah, <laughs> it's also like there is something there to be solved, perhaps. 
And Leyline does a lot of stuff for us. It's a four mana permanent for In Search for Greatness. So if it's already in play and we play In Search for Greatness, if we have a five drop in our hand on turn three, we can play it for free. So it's, it can make five mana without Nykthos. It can just make five mana. The other thing it does is if we want to play it with an Enigmatic Incarnation and we Wolf Willow Haven into Enigmatic Incarnation, so turn three, we can play it. Again, we can sack it to get a five drop on turn three. Or it'll let us play Leyland Binding early so that when we play Enigmatic Incarnation, we can immediately go to seven. It also lets us play a six drop early with In Search for Greatness in play. So like the fact that it works with both of them, it's a four mana permanent in play that also makes our six drop Leyland Binding cheap. And then lets us turn that six drop into value or as a four mana drop, it turns into value. And again, for our truest charm holds everything together because In Search for Greatness is a trigger. So on turn three, you can just tutor up your five drop. You can tutor up your six drop. You can tutor up your seven, or excuse me, tutor up your seven or tutor up your five or tutor up your three if you like um, in response to the In Search for Greatness trigger based on the permanence that you have in play. Sounds great. You have the ability to like access creatures at all these different spots on the curve. When I look at the list, there's almost no creatures in it. Right? There's only nine creatures total, and you have to split those strategically among threes, fives, and sevens. I mean, do you think that's a problem? You're almost pricing yourself into having to pay three extra for the Archmage's Charm, Archdrew's Charm, just to like find a creature. Well, that's for the In Search for Greatness half. The, um, yeah. the, the Enigmatic Incarnation tutor half is just happens. Okay. I have run out of three drops, that's for sure. I've cast, I've put all fives in play and not, not had any left. Uh, but this is about the creature suite that normal enigmatic plays, so I'm not, I'm not too worried about it. The second Atraxa basically gets you there every time. I, 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 they can't run you out of threats. Hmm. Okay. So what have your results been like so far? With both of these lists, I built them on Arena, like I said, with uh, Red, who's a friend of the pod, and we tweaked them out over time. I think these final versions have been like, I think the previous list went like 8-2, and two, and this one uh, went like 10-1 and one, um, in the diamond level on the ladder. I have to say, as someone who does not play a lot of Arena, the quality of our opponents was not impressive. <laughs> um, so I, I, don't, I actually don't know how good the decks really are. Uh, it felt like there were lines our opponents could have taken where they could have performed a lot better against us. Um, but the deck is like very good. It's very powerful. You kind of can't go over the top of it. Obviously, this is before the Pro Tour, so the the super tweaked list that the pros provided for. Oh, there's no Lotus Field on Arena, um, but the the Vampire list and uh, you know whatever the Red White Heroic Shell. Um, maybe these cards will be bigger problems than we realize. Um, we also just have like a super sweet, like creatures we can find in our sideboard. We have a uh, rampaging Frostodon. We have Clothis. Uh, we have Eidolon of Rhetoric. We have Masker Girl, which has been awesome against Convoke. Elder Gargaroth is awesome, uh, against like Phoenix and, and, uh, Convoke as well. So also in theory, it blocks the, uh, Ripper. That's like, <laughs> I guess what we'll find out. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's going to. For the enigmatic, would you ever go up to 80, or is that just like against your principles? 
I mean, it might be correct to go up to 80. You lose a lot of the power of your In Search for Greatness draws, though, right? Because the card that really makes In Search for Greatness great is the are the two ley lines, and you're just going to draw those both significantly less of the time. Hmm. Oh, I forgot the other super sweet thing that this list can do. We're playing a, a selection of triomes so that we can just Archdruid's Charm for the key piece. So we have a... Um, a Zagoth and a Jetmir's Garden. So like on three, you can just find the Triome that gets you to Leyline. So you can then Leyline and Enigmatic on turn four the same turn. Oh, I see. With without without the uh, Leyline, excuse me, without the Leyline of the Guild Pack. So if you already have like a Spars Headquarters in play, you just tutor up the Zagoth Triome that. That puts the fourth land into play tapped on your third turn, right? We all understand that. That you play a fifth land, and now you enigmatic incarnation and binding in the same turn, and then tutor up your Traxa. Yeah, I was wondering. So for Archer's Charm, in the previous list, it, it's often going to get Nykthos. but here, if we're talking about getting creatures, we're we're not taking advantage of the mana ramp aspect. Like there's no Nykthos here. I guess there could be, but um, there isn't currently. Well, Nykthos is a lot worse with the Search for Greatness. Yeah, point taken. But you still have that that ramp element because of the way that Leyline binding interacts with these triumphs. Right. So you could even like in search for greatness on two, Archdruid's charm, and then you could like binding Archdruid's charm for the seven drop in this in your upkeep. If you had two charms, for instance. Interesting. Okay. It comes up more often than you think. We're also playing a single Murex main, which is actually an incredible card to tutor for against control. Hmm. You just like Archdruid's Charm in their end step. They think you're going to get a creature that they're going to counter. You just tutor up the land instead. Um, you just start passing, looking at each other, and you just, you're just making one ones every turn. Okay. All right. <laughs> I like it. But yeah, so the suite of creatures I started with was basically like the Enigmatic, so I tweaked it out a little bit, but our three drops are Kazool's Flanker, so that is a 3-1 that exiles a graveyard, or gains two life scries two, or gets like plus one, plus one if creatures get swept. That You never use that one. So it's like a main deck graveyard hate piece, or a life gain piece. Knight of Autumn, obviously Disenchant, or gain four life. Deputy Detention. And then your five drops are Tulsimir, Kenrith, Elishnorn, and then your seven drops are a one Titan of Industry, two Atraxa. Yeah, I'm wondering if you should try Reflector Mage instead of Deputy, just because of the current <laughs> Soren metagame. Yeah, that that might be the case. Um, we were definitely tweaking this out to have more game against um, Convoke because this deck does not play one mana removal, mm. um, and Deputy is incredible there. But it might be the case that maybe you replace uh, Knight of Autumn with Reflector Mage, but you still keep the Deputy Attention because it does take care of problem troublesome permanence. That's true. So maybe you just don't need the Knight because you have um, Flanker to gain life, not as much. And then you can disenchant with Titan of Industry, which I've had to do a few times. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. And again, with the... Um, the other thing you could do is you can play um, the Agent of Treachery as a seven if you're really worried about Flanker. You just sack the Agent, but you take their their six five. It's like a very reasonable thing to do. 
Do you find that the Leyland of the Guild Pact is doing enough in this deck? Yeah, it's just, you just, the problem before is you have all these nut draws, but they, you know, you need certain combinations of cards. This just adds like an extra card, right? So like, if you have a hand that opens with an Archdruid's Charm and in Search for Greatness and a Leyline, the Leyline functionally makes five mana because the Charm tutors up a, whichever five drop is better and plays it for free on turn three. Hmm. I see. And then if Leyline's in play and you have a binding, now you actually have one drop removal, right? So you're like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'd be toast if there was an aggro deck. You just, every land you play is all colors. You just get to cast binding on turn one. And then whenever you draw your enigmatic incarnation, the game's functionally over. So you just have all these like nut draws or like you have Leyline binding in hand and you have Wolf Willow Haven and enigmatic incarnation. So that's a turn three tutor for a five drop. You can just incinerate your Leyline. So it just gives you, a, again, because this deck, like, it doesn't have this sort of consistent, like, red-black does, right? Where, like, it's playing all the best one-mana cards and really powerful twos and very powerful threes. Like, our turn one is often really bad, so we need, like, really great, like, turn three, four, and five, and Leyline helps you do all that stuff. And because you're playing Enigmatic Incarnation, even, like, you play Incarnation on turn three, you know, you sack your Wolf Haven and you get your whatever, our Reflector Mage, to bounce their their guy. The next turn, you can just tap out, play Leyline on four, and it just turns into a five-mana card, right? Like, it's just, it's not the end of the world. Yeah. So we get, we have ways to get mana out of it within Search for Greatness. We have ways to get five power or five mana uh, creature out of it with Enigmatic Incarnation. And it also can give the mana back by letting us play Leyline of the Binding. And the Leyline Binding draws are the ones that are just nutty. Like, a turn three Atraxa is just like, in your upkeep that you also have two mana available that turn. It's just crazy. <laughs> you just can't lose the game. And then the other thing that's really cool is you can like get your double enigmatics, right? Where you like sack a ley line, sack an enigmatic, and then you like get your Elish uh, Norn and then you copy it. You, then you copy your five drop. So you like get your dude that makes a three, three wolf. It like gains six life, the three, three trades, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, is this the best performing in search of greatness deck that we've ever brewed? Oh yeah, but I mean, again, I was playing on I was playing on the ladder, okay. so I'm optimistic uh, that the deck felt good. Like it was still doing its thing. It was surprisingly consistent. That was the thing I was really looking for. I actually need to play it in a league, I think, um, and and then maybe yeah, like you say, play the reflector mage. That actually seems better. Because when we initially brewed in search of greatness, we went one and seventeen between you, me, and Damon. <laughs> I think the best I ever did was a three-two. Like months later, um, I brewed a later list that was playing Leyline Binding Enigmatic Incarnation that did pretty well. Okay, I think I three-two with that one. Okay, so this just makes the, that interaction better. That's all it does, and we ha- and we have Atraxa now as the best seven drop. It's just the de facto card to tutor for. So the fact that that's exactly a seven mana spell means that like our nut draws are even nuttier and Atraxa just dominates the 6-5 Vampire because it's actually bigger than it. So it's like one of the few cards that actually just straight races it. So it's like, it's very well positioned. Yeah, I mean, that that makes sense. And they only play one two-mana kill spell in their whole shell. That's the other thing. So like, if you get a big creature in play, it used to be sometimes they just terror it, right? Because they play like two or three or four or five, like two edicts and blah, blah, blah. Like, they can't actually kill your big creature. Like, even Titan of Industry just beats it. Oh, true. Yeah, they're just playing the one bitter triumph. 
Yeah. All right. I mean, that all sounds very good. I guess, I guess the question I'm left with is of those original decks that went one in 17 when we played them, what would our record have been if we'd taken those to the arena letter? That's the question. Exactly. <laughs> I guess we'll find out. It's kind of wild though. Like I was kind of always surprised. Like nobody talks that much about being like top 50 or top hundred on the ladder. And then you realize why when you're playing on the ladder, like you just get free wins against people that like don't seem to like know what your cards do. Or if they like lose the first game with a misplay, they just immediately surrender. Like after in the second sideboarded game, cause they don't want to play anymore. It's just, I understand why the pros are like very frustrated. Like you can't get real testing there. Mm. True. Okay, so a couple of cool takes on Archer's Charm, but also just the, the surprising power of Leyline of the Guild Pact. Um, and I'm encouraged that, you know, one used Nykthos, one did not. I think it's worth taking a quick look around the metagame in both Pioneer and Modern, just to see what else is happening with the Charm. You mentioned that Lotus Field is not currently on Arena, but it is in Pioneer, and that has been the, the number one home so far for the Charm. Exactly as you predicted, David, every land of the deck can make green, except for the Thespian stage, so it's pretty low cost to put in this card that tutors up your special lands and also takes out hate pieces, so the, the best performing Lotus combo lists were playing for Archdurus Charm. I guess nothing else to say about that. I did see one other player innovating a little bit, uh, SG Cyrus on Magic Online was, I guess, interested in this three-mana ramp aspect of the Archdurus Charm. I think I compared it to Elvish Rejuvenator in the preview shows. It's like, oh, this is clearly much better. But I guess you could play both. So that's what this player did. They played for Archdurus Charm and for Elvish Rejuvenator. What's the point of all that? Well, how, how high can you go? How high can you, can you ramp? Well, you could ramp as far as Shrine of the Forsaken Gods and Sunken Citadels and Castle Garen Briggs. If you're doing all of that, well, you know, I guess your best top end is what Titans, Cavaliers. So I see three Cityscape Levelers here, and Ulamog and Ember Cool. What do you make of this deck? So there was a red green version of this that won a challenge. I think from Islands Go Same played it. Maybe um, I don't know who. Oh, yeah, it had like a, tar a Tarka Wade or something, right? Yeah, Tarka, and then the the three red green sorcery like XL five play an extra land that turn. That's right. Yeah, um, but very similar shell where they were playing Elvish Rejuvenator, Sylvan Caryatid, Cavalier of Thorns. That was still the base, right? And then they just had different cards on top. So they're also this deck is also playing Glimpse the Core. So they have a ton of two mana ramp, and then just like pure value. I'm shocked they're not playing Kiora with all these creatures with four power more, but. I guess Kira not on turn two isn't as good. This deck is just totally immune to Fatal Push, which is like the second best card in the format, which is very interesting, right? You, when you make that, that's one of the advantages of the list I was just talking about that, okay, it's not playing Nykthos, but it doesn't have to play Mana Elf. So your opponent's just like floating a bunch of cards in, in game one. And this deck takes advantage of that. It's like a control deck in that sense where a lot of your spot removal is really bad. And a lot of the creatures like Cityscape Leveler, Ulamog, Emrakul, these cards are really good against blue-white because they have cast triggers. And that really helps this deck, I think, is very good against sweepers. Uh, it's very good against point removal because like Cavalier has a come into play ability, Titan has a come into play ability. I don't know how it can ever beat 
Lotus. Um, but other than that, this deck is super sweet. Yeah, I mean, you really can't do anything until turn four, right? That's that's the soonest you can impact the board. Um, yes. But maybe that's fine. It's not playing Kiora, but it is playing two copies of Up the Beanstalk, still legal in Pioneer, and I heard it's being reprinted at Mythic in Modern Horizons 3. So, <laughs> that's, that's not true. But yeah, I, I think this is just a one-off, but it was interesting to see the Rejuvenator Archdruid combo and this, this interesting top end. I love the idea of charm with Castle Garenbrig and Sunken Citadel. Like you can find whichever piece you're missing, so you can get up to that seven mana very easily. Yeah. Yeah. If you build it with elf, you could go like turn one elf, turn two Castle Garenbrig, let's say, and then you charm for the Sunken Citadel. So like you actually can have seven mana on turn three, which is like insane. That's a Titan of Industry. That's a Titan. Yeah, Titan Industry was better. That'd be actually worth like building an entire deck around. I guess you could also play um, the Hornet Queen. Is another interesting seven. Hmm. Yes. All right. So that's Pioneer. That's what we've seen so far. Uh, mostly Lotus combo. If we go to modern, things get a lot more interesting. So starting off with simple uses, the first mode of the Archer is Charm. Elodamry's Call plus Tudor Land into play. Like that that alone is already pretty interesting. Goes directly into a shell like uh, Valakut Primeval Titan. Um, not the amulet one, but just like the classic red-green, what we might call a scapeshift deck, although... No scapeshift! Right, I mean, I guess scapeshift is often now hiding in the, in the wish board, and you play four copies of wish instead. So we have a, you know, people of 5 vote with that, just like red-green Titan wish titan shift i guess um there's also a version of this that uses indomitable creativity instead of wish as more copies of the primeval titan so that is also five owed and both of these decks were playing three copies of arstruous charm surprise they're not playing four maybe it's just like not quite mana efficient enough if i had to guess like well nice you also have like option. dwarven mines i guess so with dwarven mine and balakut maybe you just can't cast it that consistently on turn three Oh, yeah, I guess in the creativity deck, you do have that issue. In the non-creativity build... Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm still surprised, yeah. Hmm. Anyway, those are out there. Those, those are 5 would. I noticed that one player, uh, the Revan Christ, the Revan Christ? Who knows? The Revan? Must be a Pioneer fan, because they, they took what is essentially the pre-ban mono-green shell, you know, with Kiora and Karn and Storm the Festival and all that, Ported it into modern, and they're not the first person to do this. I think this was like a mini fad like a year ago. But you can still play Leyline of Abundance, the, the good Leyline in modern. So what are you really adding? I mean, basically, Arsturus Charm is just plugging the hole, right? It, it finds Nykthos more often, and if you happen to find Nykthos, it finds your best creature more often, which I guess is Cavalier of Thorns in this build. And this card actually did pretty well in a prelim. This is like another thing you can do, but we haven't really broken any new ground yet. Let's keep going. Leyline of the Guild Pact. Okay, so this is the tech, right? I was initially envisioning that this was this would happen in like a mono green Nykthos shell, and there I think the first recorded 5-0 was that. It was in modern, it was by Duralumberzak. Nykthos Leyline 
both Leyland of Abundance and Leyland of the Guild Pact. And then Archdrew is Charmed to make sure you find your Nykthos more often. And then they're actually killing with Valakut plus Triad of the Elysian Grove, which is interesting. Overall, like, not, not a super exciting build. I mean, it's pretty exciting. Playing one mana elves that die to various one damage sources is exciting because you're just trying to feel something, you know? I love the singleton yeah. Kessig Wolf run as well. That's that's kind of sweet. Let's tutor it up. Then it's go time. Is that better than Lyra the Hydra? I mean, I guess it must be. <laughs> it gives trample. What do you mean? It's way better. I mean, but it's not a standalone threat. Far be it for me to question Der Lumberzak. Uh, they're on the board. They're on the trophy board with this. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know if they, do they deserve the credit for setting off this Leyland of the Guild Pack trend? I, I'm not sure who actually was the first person to do this. But we started seeing people playing that with wild stuff. Um, like Scion of Draco plus Leyland of the Guild Pact turns out to be a very interesting interaction. That's almost become a staple deck lately. If you go into the results, you'll see this deck popping up pretty frequently. I think it is a staple deck. It had the best record at the regional championships by a huge margin. It was like 68%. Um, okay, so tell me about the build. So the build that I've seen is basically like the Zoo deck with like Leyline of the Binding, Leyline of the Guild Pack, Scion of Draco, and then you have like the red green um it's power and toughness are equal to the number of um land types you have in play uh people are playing wild nakadal people are playing the x3 trample um cat from the recent set that has a uh, power equal to the number of land types you have in play i don't even know what it's called that, i guess that's another cat if you're looking for one <laughs> Territorial Kavu is the star star and yep. Nakadal Outcast, I think. It's the two drop. The star three. So yeah, it's basically just a zoo deck that's also playing like Leyland of the Guild Pack and Scion of Draco as sort of like a combo where all your creatures can have hexproof. And then it just kills you with them. So the Leyland of the Guild Pack does does slightly more in modern, right? It allows you to use your fetches as just normal lands if you need to. Uh, powers up Leyland Binding, and then it powers up Sign of the Draco, <laughs> powers up these these zoo creatures. Um, it's like the deck Fade and Special. Yeah, turns out to be very good. So there's also a slower version that doesn't play all the zoo creatures, right? It's instead playing the One Ring, it's playing Dryad plus Valakut as its kill, it's playing Red and Six, but it's still using Leyland plus Leyland Binding as the, the double Leyland combo. Kind of surprising that Archdrew's Charm goes in this deck. Like, it's just sort of there doing its own thing. What's the explanation for Archdrew's Charm? Well, it finds Valakut. You don't have that many other ways to tutor it in this list, other than just, like, drawing a bunch of cards with Wondering. And this doesn't have a way to accelerate your mana other than Dryad being in play, so you need to get up to enough mountains that Valakut starts to damage your opponent. Also, like, the fact that Leyland makes all your lands all types means that Valakut counts as a mountain and that really matters so either that or dryad does it mm. okay the other thing that we're not even mentioning is because modern has the fetch for triome package their fail case where they don't draw the line of the guild pack is way better than um 
Pioneer, where we're having to play like the two man enchantment to simulate the guild pack. Um, they can fetch, you know, they can play a couple of triumphs, just fetch them and, and still cast Leyland of, of the Binding on second turn, for instance, for one mana. Yeah, I mean, that, that's why I was thinking that you wouldn't need Leyland of the Guild Pact, because Leyland Binding is good enough as it is. But I hadn't really thought about the Sign of Draco interaction and how attractive that would be. Yeah, I mean, that turns out to be very good. Kudos to everyone who's worked on that in Modern. We move on to other uses of Archer's Charm. Lotus Fields in Pioneer, great home for it. You can also do Lotus Fields in Modern. Now, this is not exactly a proven deck yet, but it's a deck that people have toyed with. I think Aspiring Spike has done a lot of work on it. It's even called Amulet Lotus if you look it up on Goldfish. It's like its, its own archetype. So the idea here is that Amulet of Vigor plus Lotus Field can be a very spectacular source of mana. You pay the price for it, but uh, it can be very spectacular. <laughs> so what do you do with that like temporary burst of mana? Well, you, you try to get a Timeless Lotus into play um, or just like really go off with the ramp. So Spike is, I can't recap the entire evolution of the deck, but he's, he's put up quite a few trophies with this in the past year. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and like Timeless Lotus comes into play tapped, so it works with Amulet of Vigor as well. You can tutor with Arch Druid's Charm for a Golos. Golos puts another Lotus Field into play. So if you have multiple Amulet of Vigors, like Golos actually functions as like a super dark ritual. Um, and then the nice thing, again, about the, the charm in this deck, and I think that was a big improvement, is he got to cut down a lot of his win conditions. If he just makes a bunch of mana... He doesn't have to play all these cards that are dead. So he can just play one Emrakul the Aeon's turn, just play one Cultivator Colossus, and he just has this tutor package. Exactly like the other thing where you wanted to play all these sevens within Search for Greatness in play. It's like, no, you don't have to. You get to functionally play like six, you know, Atraxas um, when you really need it. You just tutor for it. So yeah, you just wait till he has all his mana, and then he always just has Emrakul or always just has Cultivator Colossus. So you're saying that the charm is a big upgrade? Oh, it's a huge upgrade. It finds the Lotus Field if you need it. Let's say you have two, three Amulet of Vigors in play. So you tap three mana and you make nine. So it's a ritual. It can fight. It can disenchant Blood Moon, right? Just put three, three green mana in your pool when they cast Blood Moon. Blood Moon Resolve, disenchant it. And then you get to cut your whole deck now. It could just be mana and draw because you just find the, the few payoff pieces when you need them. Yeah. That's the dream, the Archdruid's dream coming to fruition. Um, yes. Okay, so great uses already. We haven't quite broken the new ground in modern, except for, of course, the, the Leyland the Guild Pack thing. Two more decks, though, that are going a little bit in a weirder space. So you've been messing with In Search of Greatness. The, the entire premise of that card in Pioneer was like, oh, what if we could tap into the power of Aether Vial in Pioneer? Well, in, in modern, you have actual ether vial we see creature decks using it or they used to <laughs> not anymore but there was always this fascinating deck right the eternal command shoda yasoka blue green with like eternal witness and ether vials cryptic commands no one has been able to win with that deck and yet it's just it just like captures the imagination right so from time to time people try putting this back together the mtgo player what up what up? Got uh, 80th what place. Up? <laughs> what up? 
got published, at least on a modern challenge, with their take on blue-green Eternal Command. It's the cards you would expect, right? Vial, Eternal Witness, Cryptic Command, some counter magic, three Archdruid's Charms, and two Tishana's Tidebender, which has turned out to be one of the more playable cards from the previous, previous set in Modern. Four Tarmogoyfs, um, three Snapcasters, two Endurance, two, three Subtleties. It's never really clear like what's happening here, but do you, do you see the Archdruid's Charm like actually providing some important synergy in this deck? yeah because you have all the answers right like you can charm for witness when your vials on three and then it's just like basically a free card draw right because you just play the witness get the charm right back and then you can do the same thing with snapcaster mage does it do anything that eladarmy's call doesn't do um yeah i mean the, the the weird thing about charm that I didn't even realize is it actually puts a plus one plus one counter on a creature when it fights or bites that it doesn't fight. So mm. I think it also just like helps your clock probably like mm. you just like your Tarmogoyf helps it helps like win battles and uh, you don't really have like super sweet lands to fetch. So I don't think you use it for that. Although they are playing a one of Bajuka Bog. That's interesting. Um, I think it's more just like a value card. You just like you find your endurance when you need it. You find your brazen borrower when you need it to blink their gill pack playline. Yeah, I guess it is one of the one of your main ways to get rid of a creature. Um, the fight mode. Okay, I mean, <laughs> kudos to this player for making it happen. Uh, I don't know what 80th place. Like, I don't know what record that is. So I don't know if this deck is good or not. It seems tough without the red removal that uh, Shouta played when his awesome uh, teamer list almost won the world championships. Yeah. All right. One last Archer's Charm deck. This is in modern from the player Idmast. Got a 5-0 with black, green, Asmo cookbook. It's playing some unusual creatures to support this package. So it's four Asmo, four Cookbook, four Saga. We we know that. But what do you do to surround that? Well, you can you can go the finale of devastation route, which this player is doing. So four copies of that to get the Asmo more frequently. That means you're gonna have Cookbook more frequently, which means that if you if you want to build in like a discard reanimation package, you you can do it with some confidence. So there are four persists here. As far as things to discard, there's just the one Archon of Cruelty. That's kind of interesting. Um, and maybe that's part of what Archdruid's Charm is doing here. So four Persist, but only one Archon of Cruelty. Four Troll of Khazad Doom, which you know, persisting that back is, is not terrible. It's not totally embarrassing. And two Feasting Troll Kings. Three Ovaltaste Daredevils, which is one of those cards that, you know, the second Daredevil doesn't really help you, right? Uh, one Daredevil is enough to support any number of cookbooks. And that's another place where having the Archdruid's Charm to just like find your first Daredevil could be a big help. Um, so we already see that the Charm doing some useful stuff there. There's one copy of Grist, so now you can use it to tutor up your one Archon, tutor up your one Grist. And then the part that I cannot explain is the additional one drops, David. What, what are these cards doing here? The Selactite Stalker and the Teething Wormlet. <laughs> Uh, I have no idea. So Teething Wormlet, just so people know, is a one-mana 1-1. One, one. When an artifact enters play, if it's the first time this triggers for the turn, it gets a plus-one, plus-one counter. Every other trigger, it does not get a plus-one, plus-one counter. It gets, you gain one life. So it's hard for it to get 
that big, that fast. Stalactite Stalker also only gets one plus one plus one counter a turn cycle. Um, I guess they wanted just like a clock to pressure with. They don't have that many artifacts. I mean, of course they have the the cookbook package. Teething Wormlet is like passively gaining life. Um, <laughs> like the rest of this deck is awesome. Like I don't I don't understand the eight one drops, but everything else about this is incredible. Like the problem with Persistless is all the Archons of Cruelties you have to play. Mm -hmm. So just like waiting, like EOT, tutor up the Archon when you have the cookbook and chuck it, and then you persist it. But for the rest of the game, you're just not getting clunked up with that stuff. Yeah. I would maybe try to go to one Feasting Troll King. I think we've kind of learned we don't need that many of them. Same, same kind of deal. It's like you've got a bunch of food in play because you've got a cookbook going and they've killed your, your, um, your Asmos. And you, uh, all of a sudden, you just get Feasting Troll King, chuck it in the bin, and, and you have this big threat. So I, I like all that. I just, I, the one drops, I, I can't explain. I, I'm not <laughs> sure what's going on there. You're not rushing out to buy a Stalactite Stalkers? <laughs> no, I, <laughs> not unless I have to. <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, kudos to Idmas for a sweet list and a sweet 5-0. Yeah, very sweet list. You can see they're getting a lot out of the charm. Just the at least these lines we're envisioning. Yeah. So yeah, the promise of Arstra's charm seems to be uh, really coming to fruition in modern. David, I, I love how you're making it happen in Pioneer. I'm excited to try these lists and <laughs> improve upon our record for In Search of Greatness. Uh, it looks fun. <laughs> yeah, it can't get worse, at least. <laughs> All right, now before we go, uh, we promise you some picks of the week, and we do have two decks that are worthy of a shout-out. Um, do you want to go first, David? Yeah, I would like to shout out Huge Rest. They built an Is It Prowess shell using, uh, as Dan intimated earlier, Fugitive Codebreaker. Uh, they were inspired by an article that Law 11 uh, wrote on their Substack, which uh, was like sort of outlining the uses of the card, uh, outlining how they were evaluating the card. A lot of great ideas. Uh, Huge Rest took some of that uh, technology, took it into the leagues, 5 0 So this is a Gigantha deck. But the one of the key insights is he's playing a ton of two-mana hasters after Kumano faces Kazakhan. So only four Monster Swift Spears of One Drop, the four Fugitive Code Breaker, four Sprite Dragon, and then it's all the hits. So you're you have eight cantrips, sleight of hand, consider. You have Crash Zoo as an additional cantrip that also grants Trample, which is relevant with all these prowess creatures. Monstrous Rage, that card's, you know, taken over. Play with Fire. And then a Singleton Behind the Mask and a Singleton Shore Up. Um, <laughs> and then 20 Lands. I mean, just a really clean list. Behind the Mask, I guess, is uh, someone inspired by you, Dan. Is that true? That's what that's what he just said in our Discord. Um there was a card. It wasn't behind the mask. It was maybe from like the set previous. It, where, it was a set previous, yeah. Because it could turn like an artifact into a creature, and I I thought that was like shrapnel blast esque. <laughs> and I guess I don't. I mean, I appreciate that user listened to the cast and like wanted to put this to the test and just played the one X and got the five O. So this, as far as we know, this is the first five O with behind the mask. Um, behind the mask is from the current set, and it hasn't a collect evidence claws where you can use it to shrink an opponent's creature and yeah i saw i think la 11 and, and huger have been like collaborating on this shell for a while and 
<laughs> whenever they do something with behind the mask uh, they report it but i think it's been cut i think it's become a second shore up sadly so yeah i mean i guess the the surprising innovation to me david is cutting the second one drop or cutting the soul scar mage right yeah um Soulscar Mage is also useful in more like mid-rangey matchups because it helps like play with fire wind combats and stuff like that. But if you're just maybe with the the additional sort of evasion of Sprite Dragon, you just if it's all going face, maybe it, that doesn't matter as much. From what I've been told, I guess the the real unlock of this build is that having these haste creatures on two, Fugitive Codebreaker was kind of the first to push in this direction kumano into codebreaker turns out to be just like way more powerful than what we're like used to doing like you could occasionally do that in the past with like turn one kumano turn two swift spear but i think la 11 was was finding in their work on the codebreaker that that just like adds up to like so you get so much more out of your kumano when you play a haste creature on two um and i guess huger I have no idea how to pronounce this. I assume it's huger, and then this is like a huger rest. Is like a oh, I see. Yeah, maybe not not huge rest, or maybe just like that's their name, Huger. Maybe they're you know Germanic in origin. I'm not really sure. <laughs> but um, okay, so you can do more than just Codebreaker. You can do Sprite Dragon now, and you just have a bunch of opportunities to go Kamano into a haste creature. It's interesting. Maybe I should have been like thinking more along those lines because I had a lot of success with Kazakhan into the uh, 4-3 Trample Haste guy. Um, of course, the plus one plus one counter was necessary to keep it around. Mm-hmm. but um, And I had to play a bunch of other cards that added plus one plus one counters so that that card was sort of at, at its maximum. But yeah, I think this card kind of simplifies uh, this build, simplifies that that sort of question into a little bit more known <laughs> area. It's a sweet build. Huger got two five O's and a couple four ones as well. So shout outs to them and shout outs to law 11, just doing the Lord's work brewing out there with the fugitive Codebreaker. I think in their article, they, they kind of simplified it. They said like, all right, what, what if it just had like kicker two to do the bedlam rifler thing? It's just like treat it as a two, one prowess haste, but it also has this kicker mode where you just draw a new hand. Like, that's actually pretty good, right? Uh, you don't have to yeah. do it, but it's pretty good to have that option just built into your deck. And, you know, I haven't talked to any Boros Heroic players, but they've picked up the card, and, it, you know, it seems to be performing. Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, I don't know if this is something that was, like, tried for the Pro Tour and rejected. There were not a lot of blue-red prowess lists, but the fact that the, uh, multiple players are having consistent success is, like... I think proof proof of concept that this is like very fertile ground for um, additional uh, exploration. Indeed. And finally, we have another blue red deck. This is one that you sent to me today, David. <laughs> I can't believe this. I mean, Aspiring Spike is just on another level, obviously, <laughs> but I've said the words enhanced surveillance more times than anyone should be allowed to say on a podcast, but you know, I have editorial privileges, so I'll just keep saying it. My record with enhanced surveillance is like 04, 06 or something. I I just like I was pretty convinced that if you could otherworldly gaze for five at a time, it was somehow gonna unlock something. But when I finally actually had to put that into a deck, you know, I was responsible. I was 
like, okay, I will actually put the Dragon's Rage Channeler combo in there because that, that is enough so that every time Dragon's Rage Channeler surveils one and then enhanced surveillance kicks that up to surveil three, that's enough to do the Underworld Breach thing. So I had that in my deck. I went 0-4. <laughs> it didn't work, but I've, I'm not aspiring Spike. So he just like came out and 5-0 with this today. He 5-0 with it. Um, he had help. He had help in the form of the new Surveil lands. And this is something that you were talking about, David, in the set review. Like maybe this is actually just going to change the texture of modern, the ability for all of your fetches to become a Surveil. Well, you know, some number of them, right? I think the... At the RCQ championships, uh, Frank did Frank Karsten did a large study, and it was like 0.87 um, surveil lands per deck. But mm. a deck like this, where you're playing the full four and you're playing all these fetches, means you really are probably putting all four of them into play throughout the course of a game, right? Yeah, I mean, especially when enhanced surveillance is in the equation. So... My, my struggle in my limited experience with enhanced surveillance was that I would play it turn two. It's an investment. You invest in yourself, right? Invest in my future surveils, but I, I just didn't quite have enough payoff in the rest of the deck to make my otherworldly gaze for five do anything, right? I don't remember what I had. Like, like maybe I was playing Arc Like Phoenix or something or Creeping Chills. Who knows what it was? It wasn't quite worth spending additional cards and mana to make the enhanced surveillance do something. But what, what Spike's build can do because he has the fetch lands now is he doesn't have to spend any extra cards. As soon as you land the surveillance, all your fetch lands surveil three if you want them to, which is actually kind of nuts, right? Yeah. I mean, surveil three, I surveil (laughs) seven. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) He didn't stop there. He also played Thoughtbound Phantasm, and this is something I did not do, again, because I didn't have these lands. But in his tweet, he said it's better than Ragavan. Um, who, who knows if that's true? Thoughtbound Phantasm is 2-2 uh, for a blue with Defender. It picks up a plus one, plus one counter whenever you surveil, and then it begins to be able to attack when it gets to 5-5. Five, five. Yeah, and so it can get turned on very quickly, and then during the combo turn, it can also just be a sort. Okay, you don't have the you know the various ways to add plus two, plus two, or whatever. It's just naturally doing it if you are doing the thing, and maybe you don't have quite enough to to get your win with the um, the combo. You can get the, the win the other way, right? You can just attack them with a big dumb guy. That's <laughs> that's the way a lot of combos end. So yeah, it's it's really this deck actually kind of attacks from a bunch of different angles. It has almost no rares apart from the lands. It's actually very interesting. Like Breach, three Breach, one Oracle. That's it. Oh, two Letter Treaders. Okay. Well, not cheap, but it's interesting to see what you can do with these. <laughs> Draft chap. I should have bought out Enhanced Surveillance. I knew it, Dave. I knew I should have just put my money where my <laughs> mouth was. Instead, I'm just like struggling with my uh, Eldrazi Stompy for store credit. <laughs> FNM days. <laughs> What am I doing with my life? Jeez. Also, I, I mean, the other thing I want to point out, four pick your poison in the sideboard with a singleton breeding pool. Just like mm-hmm. the, the way modern lets you like cheat on lands is just kind of stupid, honestly. It's like, oh, this one mana card is really good. Well, we're not really playing this class. Well, it doesn't matter. You just <laughs> staple a, uh, a certain kind of fetch target and you just can do it all. <laughs> all right. So. 
some of our predictions have played out. Others have been disastrous. And yeah, we'll, we'll keep checking in for a means to be seen. The future is unwritten, David. Yeah, exciting times. And um, we'll have to just keep, keep on brewing. Exactly. All right. Well, good to see you. And we'll catch you on the flip side. All right. Take care, sir. Thank you.